We return to the Judge Napolitano's interview with Colonel McGregor on January 17th, 2023. And nothing that Russia has done to this point in time has harmed Russia. Russian position in the world has grown much stronger. Their oil and gas exports are way up. The ruble is stronger. Their economy is stronger. So the notion that somehow or another, Russia's decision to intervene in Ukraine to protect itself and eliminate the possibility that Ukraine could become a member of NATO has harmed it, I think is just fundamentally false. And I don't see any evidence at all that that will change in the near future. Is President Putin prepared after his likely Russian victory to tolerate 20 years of guerrilla warfare against whoever or whatever is going to run the government in the parts of present-day Ukraine that will be returned to Russia, whether it's Russia-friendly Ukrainian politicians or Moscow stand-ins? Well, the first point, I think, is to keep in mind that mentioning this insurgent warfare that we are theoretically prepared to support for 20 years is probably a guarantee that Russian forces will have to march all the way to the Polish border and to the Romanian border and the Moldovan border. So that there are no super patriots remaining who want to shoot at Russian security forces from the tops of uh, office buildings. Yes. I mean, you have to put yourself in the position of uh, the Russian state. If you knew that if you did not do what I just described and, and completely take Ukraine at this point, you ran the risk of being the victim of such an insurgency and guerrilla tactics. However, on the other hand, I don't think that's something that the Russians ever wanted to do. I mean, Putin is on record several times in the last 10 years of saying that in his judgment, the people of Western Ukraine would be happier under Polish administration than Russian administration on any given day. He knows that he's not going to win friends and cultivate goodwill in Western Ukraine no matter what he does. So I think he would prefer to avoid that. His concern is exactly what you expressed. If I sign an agreement that says, consigns everything east of the Dnieper River, east of Kiev, including potentially Odessa, I don't know, but I would suspect so, back to Russian control, will that then be the end of it? That's the question he has to ask. And if we don't sign on for this, and we don't uh, supply guarantees of security, then I guess he says I can't sign and he marches all the way to the West. This is the dilemma that we, we have failed to understand. We have made this much worse than it could have ever been. And it continues to get worse. It's not just piling on all of this extra equipment that's not going to change the military outcome. It's sort of pouring salt in the wound. We made it clear it's not just regime change. It's humiliate Russia, destroy it, dismember it. Insane. Under those circumstances, I'm surprised that we'll get through this without a nuclear exchange. Colonel, do you fear that the United States of America may precipitate a nuclear exchange rather than suffer the loss of this proxy war, which at the present moment seems inevitable? Well, Judge, you know, that's always been my nightmare. I'm not concerned about a bolt out of the blue attack by the Russians. I've always been concerned under the circumstances we've described, when the Ukrainian military capability simply collapses and the state is in ruins and its government is ineffective and unavailable to rule, that we would then try to intervene some way or another. And this intervention then would precipitate a collision with the Russians that we would lose. And when I say lose, again, it's it's back to simple mathematics and an understanding of who holds the high ground. We're fighting on Russia's doorstep. If the Russian army sent 
100,000 troops to the Mexican border, we would crush them simply because they're on our border and we could put a million men on the border and ultimately crush them. So we would lose. Then the question is, do we accept ignominious defeat and withdrawal or not? And again, this goes back to the other issue we've discussed, which is NATO. We keep hearing this, if NATO doesn't win, if we don't win, NATO's in trouble. So we essentially turn this into an existential question for us when it never was. It's existential for Russia. What happens in Ukraine is an existential matter, but not for us. Yet we've made it that. And so there's a real probability that if the Russians move in, and I think they will sooner than later, and crush the Ukrainians, that NATO will be in trouble. The, the alliance is going to stand around and many members are going to say, well, why am I in this? If the United States is not going to commit itself to an all-out war, why should we be members? We wanted to return to the Gonzalo Lira interview of January 17th, 2023, as he describes the situation regarding the multi-fronts that the Ukraine army has had in the east and how they are being uh, increasingly decimated by the Russian advances. This is a current up-to-date description of the front. There's actually three fronts he describes. The first which fell on or about July 1st of last year, is very close to the Donbass border, running north and south in the northern area there, and then some 20 miles to the west, crucial Bakhmut-Solidar front, which is dissipating as we speak. And then a, another one further to the west is 20 miles inland from that. So that's kind of the geographical overview of it. But here's that discussion. The point is, what's going on now in, in the front in the Donbass region, since the start of this war, the, the Kiev regime installed basically three lines of defense, and the Russians have been grinding through them. Now, the first line of defense was Severodonetsk, Lysychansk, uh, Popasnaya, that line, which was breached in July 1st, I believe, 2022, and now the Russians have been grinding through the second line of defense, which is the Bakhmut line. And Solidar is a, uh, essentially, it's a separate town, but basically a suburb of Bakhmut. It's a city or town of 10,000 people before the start of this conflict. And it mattered because, you see, this line of Bakhmut-Solidar, north-south line, basically was the second and perhaps the strongest line of defense that the Kiev regime had installed. They've been building these defenses for the past seven, eight years since uh, the signing of Minsk II agreements. And so the capture of Solidar is a very important moment. It's basically the penultimate town of the penultimate defensive line. You see, once they uh, captured Solidar, they have essentially encircled the city of Bakhmut. There's only one road of escape for Bakhmut. And what the Zelensky regime is doing is that they are actually trying to hold on to Bakhmut by pouring more troops into it, which is incredibly demoralizing because the troops realize that they're going into certain death. And so they're just throwing away lives willy-nilly. People are saying in the West that Solidar and Bakhmut don't matter. They do. They do enormously. Because, you see, this was the center, the centerpiece of the defensive line to hold back any Russian onslaught. And once your defensive lines are fully breached, there's nothing holding them back, okay? And furthermore, the city of Bakhmut is a very important transportation hub. Several highways and several train lines cross through it. And so that's why it was a centerpiece 
of the second defensive line of the Kiev regime. Now, after the Russians finally breach through this second line, once they have captured Bakhmut, which will not be tomorrow, it will take uh, a few days, if perhaps not even a couple of weeks, but once they finally do capture it, the only further line, the third defensive line, is on the city of Kramatorsk. But this third line is the weakest of the lines. And beyond that, once they have overrun Kramatorsk, which would be inevitable, because it's much easier to overrun it than the current Bakhmut line, then there's going to be basically clear sailing. I mean, just a, a flat terrain with no defensive positions between uh, Kramatorsk and the city of Dnepro, formerly Dnepropetrovsk, which is on the Dnepro River. This would essentially mean that the Russians would capture uh, the bulk of eastern Ukraine. This would be a huge deal. And the way things are going, this is an inevitability because Solar has been captured. Bakhmut is about to be captured. It's encircled by three sides of the three roads leading out of it. Two of them are controlled by the Russians, either fire control or they have outright possession of the roads. So the, the forces in Bakhmut have only a single road out. It's not under fire control, but that it eventually will be under fire control. And so once Bakhmut falls, the next line will be Kramatorsk, which is far weaker than the Bakhmut line. And once they overrun that, once the Russians overrun that line, then that would be the ballgame insofar as eastern Ukraine is concerned. And so there's a lot of speculation going on insofar as that are gaining, gaining pace because it's clear that the Russians are preparing a big winter offensive, but nobody's quite sure where. At this time, it's credibly estimated that 650,000 uh, Russian soldiers are on the borders of Ukraine. A big grouping is in southern Belarus, just across the border from Ukraine, from the northern border, the northwestern border of Ukraine. Another big grouping is in the Belgorod uh, Oblast, which is literally uh, uh, 50 kilometers away from my position. And then there's the uh, third grouping that's in the Donbass region and the south of the country. It's sort of like spread out. It's not as concentrated as the others, other two. And so nobody's quite sure what the Russians have in mind. Of course, the Russians probably have a very clear idea of what they're about to do, but they're just not telling anybody, and there's, you know, operational security has been incredibly good, so nobody has any clue, any realistic idea, of what the Russians are going to do next. But we, are, we have reached a, a key moment in this war. The breaching of the second line, and the fact that Solar has fallen, and Bakhmut is, is all but done, it's inevitable. There's no way to save it. No, no number of troops will save it, because the defensive fortifications have already been destroyed. And so even if more soldiers flood into it, they will not be in positions to defend themselves from the Russian onslaught. So Bakhmut is done, okay? It's just a matter of time. And so from that perspective, you realize that we have tipped over insofar as the conflict in, uh, in its totality is concerned. Because if we think of the conflict starting on February 24th, as initially it was an expeditionary force that the Russians launched to essentially scare the Zelensky regime into negotiations. And that failed into the spring. And so in the summer, they reorganized and they started really in September for this grinding, constant offensive. Well, we're seeing the culmination of that grinding offensive that has just ground down the Ukrainian armed forces. And so now we're at the position where the Russians will achieve some sort of breakthrough. Now, how this plays out exactly, like I said, nobody knows. But this is the time to start paying very close attention to what things are going to the things that are going on. This next segment, we return to last segment of the McGregor interview. 
where he indicates that this is not a sovereign choice of war on Ukraine's part, that the United States is calling the shots, as that is what tens upon tens of billions of dollars buys. Making the choices for Ukraine as to what to do is what we do. These choices are being made according to the perceived interests of neocon dictates led by the Biden administration, not what is best for Ukraine. Listen to McGregor. Listen to his take. All Washington has to do is tell Zelensky to go to the peace table, and this would have been over long ago. In fact, if Ukraine was sovereign and making choices solely on behalf of its own interests, this war would have been over. In fact, back in March, it was almost over. As they were close to a peace deal in in Ankara, what happened? The U.S. sent its first lieutenant, international power structure, vassal country diplomat, namely UK's Boris Johnson to Ukraine to visit with Zelensky to blow up that peace deal. This war is ours, yet we have made sure no U.S. soldiers are in the fight and coming home in body bags by design. Instead, it is tens of thousands, now in the hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians we are sending to slaughter to do what they can, as Lloyd Austin has admitted, to weaken Russia. We don't care how many Ukrainians are killed and injured, while our brainwashed U.S. public is acculturated to hate Russia and falsely frame the Ukraine-Russia-U.S.-NATO conflict as an unprovoked aggression by Russia. Check out McGregor. Uh, Again, I think that if President Biden and his handlers decided to, to end things, they could pick up the phone and do it immediately, and Zelensky would obey. So I don't buy the notion that Zelensky is an independent actor. Look, we've spent $50 billion in cash, equipment, and support thus far. You can talk about $100 billion, but that much we have spent. We own the Ukrainian state. It's the 51st state. We pay for its government. They're not independent. So we can stop this anytime we want. The problem is there's no evidence that anybody wants to. Now, have any of the Europeans stepped forward and tried to open channels to Moscow? You know, I I know that the French have made murmurings in that direction. The Germans have obviously failed miserably, and they were always the best position to do it. But if we persist in this and Ukraine is utterly destroyed, I suspect that the Europeans will have to take things in hand. And again, that spells, in my judgment, the end of NATO. We conclude the show with some takes from the Lyra interview as he theorizes what Russia's choices will be in the following stages of the execution of this war. And the Polish question. Now, I'm tantalized by the Belarus buildup because uh, a crossing from Belarusia would bring Belarus into the war proper for a start but would run the risk of confrontation with Polish forces that might very well enter uh, the west of the country. As, as you know better than me, uh, Poland regards much of western Ukraine as actually being theirs in any case. I wonder yeah. if you think a movement across the Belarusian border is A, real possibility, and B, what would its consequence be? Now, uh, is it possible? Certainly. I mean, you do have to keep in mind that the Russians, when they position troops wherever, and this is true for every military, whenever they position uh, troops anywhere, they have multiple possibilities of where to put those forces and what to do with them. They might put some troops there just as a holding mission to hold, to pin down some opposing army, or they might put them there to attack, or they could just put them there and have both plans ready to roll whatever circumstances dictate what's most favorable. 
Now, insofar as Russia attacking from Belarus, which would, of course, bring in Belarus into this conflict, and the Poles, okay, so we have multiple problems going on with the Poles. Recently, President Duda of Poland was in Lviv, and he was received like a rock star, like a celebrity, and you have to keep in mind the city of Lviv in western Ukraine is historically Polish. It's barely, I want to say something like 60 or 80 kilometers from the border. And so the issue becomes, will the Poles decide to put troops on the ground and take what they consider to be historically Polish territory? Because the city of Lviv and, and that area, geographic area, the Galicia, they consider it theirs. Part of Galicia also extends into what is southwestern uh, Belarus as well. And so will they go into it? Now, it's not clear if they have the troops to do that. The Poles, at this time, they have an army of 150,000 men. I mean, that, that's the Polish army today. But what has happened is that as of November, they call up of 200,000 men. These were, you know, untrained men who are going to have to be trained. And so that'll take a good minimum six months, closer to nine months to a year. But clearly, the, the Poles are getting ready for some conflict. I mean, they wouldn't be calling up 200,000 men, i.e. more than their current armed force, unless they were preparing for war. They've also uh, gone forward with a lot of weapons purchases from the West, weapons that will be delivered into 2024 and 2025 and, and, fo and forward on. Tanks, uh, helicopters, artillery especially, because artillery is proving itself to be the god of war once again. And so the Poles are clearly getting ready for some sort of military conflict. I mean, you don't invest that amount of money and time and effort into doubling your army unless you're very serious about getting something that you want, militarily speaking. So the issue will become for the Russians a, a very delicate political balance and a timing issue. See, on the one hand, they don't want to provoke the Poles, but on the other hand, they want to wrap this up before the Poles have an actual army that could cause problems for them. And when I say they want to wrap this up, I mean that they want to capture the entirety of Ukraine. You do have to keep in mind, if you have, as the Russians do, if you have an army of 650,000 men surrounding a country, which is what the Russians have at this point, 650,000 men is not for a war. 650,000 men is for the occupation of the entire country. That's clearly what that army is about. Okay, So the Russians probably already have a clear idea that what they have to do is they have to capture all of Ukraine before the Poles are in a position to do anything about it, militarily speaking. Because you do have to remember something that's key. The Russians no longer trust the West at all especially with the revelations by Angela Merkel and Francois Hollande. Uh, Angela Merkel, the former chancellor of Germany, Francois Hollande, the former president of France, both of them were in power in 2015 when they negotiated the Minsk II agreements that were passed by the UN Security Council, which gave a pathway to peace in Ukraine insofar as the Donbass region is concerned. And both Hollande and Merkel have said in interviews, recent interviews, they have said, that they had no intention of implementing those agreements and that they were just a way to buy time to arm Ukraine. Now, this has gone over in Russia like a lead balloon because they look at this and they say, oh, so any agreement we sign with these people will not be honored. And it's just a cynical ploy to rearm the Ukrainians. So therefore, we cannot negotiate with the West or much less with the Zelensky regime insofar as a ceasefire. We have to go for broke. We have to go and capture the whole country. 
I mean, that's what's happened because of these revelations that nobody in the Western media is talking about. The fact that Merkel and Alain said that the Minsk II agreements were just a way to buy time and that they were signed in, in, in an insincere, practically fraudulent manner, that has gone over terribly with Russia. And the Kremlin in particular, they basically realized we cannot negotiate with them because any agreement we sign, any peace deal we sign, isn't going to be worth the paper it's printed on. So ultimately, we have to capture the whole country. I mean, it, it, this is a key point that people have to understand. The Russians are not going to negotiate. They're not going to stop. And for the Russians, since this is an existential crisis, they're going to put everything necessary to win. And the Russians, you know, they have a lot of flaws, like we all do. But, you know, I, I've said this before, you know, the, the Italians are, are great at food and the French are great at fashion. And, but the Russians... They're good at war, and they're going to win this, and it's an inevitability. The only question for the Russians is they will have to accelerate the pace of this at some point to prevent the Poles from coming into Ukraine, as they are clearly intending to do, because this tour by President Duda in Lviv and this buildup of military forces by the Poles, they're not doing it by chance or just for funsies. They're doing it because they have their eye on Galicia, or the, the Ukraine part of Galicia. They have their eye on the city of Lviv, which is, as, as I said, is an important historical city for the Poles. And so the Russians want to make sure that Poland does not get in. And so that's why I think that the Russians are going to have to accelerate this. I've read a number of commentators and very astute individuals and many of them seem to be thinking that the Russians probably have, as a timetable, the 1st of September to have this totally wrapped up. This is pure speculation, so don't take this part to the bank. I mean, I just want to emphasize that. But yeah. it's reasonable. It's a reasonable speculation that the Russians will want to be done by the 1st of September to beat the Poles insofar as rearming and, and remanning their army. Because, like I said... The Poles have a, um, a current army of 150,000, and they are more than doubling it. It's 133%. That's the, the growth in this one call-up that they've done. And there seems to be even more call-ups in Poland in the pipes, in, in the legalistic uh, pipeline. And so we'll see what happens. But Poland is becoming an issue. And finally, and I'm sorry to, you know, to keep on ranting, but... There's another issue, too, that the West and the Americans, they recognize that the Zelensky regime is, you know, it's falling apart militarily. So I have speculated on my own uh, YouTube channel, and, and I think that this is reasonable, and you will have to correct me if you think I'm wrong, but my thinking is that the Americans and NATO generally realize that the Zelensky regime militarily is no match for the Russians, and so they might be deliberately positioning the Poles as the next proxy to face the Russians and sacrifice the Poles on the, uh, the Russian anvil, if you will. And I think that that might be in the cards, that the West is sort of like uh, the, uh, the Washington, is egging on the Poles into this direction of direct conflict between Poland and Russia, probably as kind of like a go-it-alone kind of thing, where it's just the Poles against the Russians and the Poles will not be able to, uh, to trigger Article 5. But something along these lines, they, it's reasonable that they're trying to suck in Poland into this conflict, because what the Americans want to avoid at all costs is that they want to avoid American lives, American boots on the ground. They want to avoid that at all costs. 
And so if they can get the Poles to fight the Russians for them, which is what they are doing with the Ukrainians, they are getting the Ukrainians to fight the Russians for them, it's, it's sort of like what these people are up to, the kind of insincerity and despicable callousness that the people in the West, the NATO people, the Pentagon people, the State Department people, that's how they treat human lives, because of their own petty little ambitions and their desire for more money and more resources. Well, let me just end the show with a couple of comments. First, I totally agree that the Russians absolutely have lost all trust for the West based on objective experiences that we've discussed on other shows, namely the continue to move eastward, even though they promised they wouldn't, talking about the NATO countries, as well as the Minsk agreement being a total setup and a fraud. However, I'm not so sure I agree that just because Russia has mobilized 650,000 troops that the whole of Ukraine will be taken. I don't believe they want the West. I think they find it irredeemable with the past connection to nationalism that so many parts of that country and the hatred of Russia that exists there. However, they certainly, by having those numbers of troops, 650,000, keeping all options open, which seems to be a rational, intelligent uh, military approach since who knows what will transpire. The bottom line is that Russia will assure itself of the national security interests that has been driving their foreign policy and ultimately led to the February 24th, 2022 invasion of Ukraine. Anyhow, thank you for tuning in tonight. See you next week. Don't be late.